We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the lunchtime campus Bible study, where it was delivered for university students. Inside your outline today, you will have seen again, there's a uh, question, comment uh, card, and I do appreciate the many that came in from last week, of which uh, I want to spend a few moments running through some answers. The more idiosyncratic ones don't get answered uh, out loud. Uh, but if you put your name and address on them, we will try and make contact with you so that we can talk to you privately about the matters if you wish to. But generally, here we go on uh, some of them. Some of them, of course, I'll answer. The idiosyncratic also in that they don't seem to, I can't recall what they've got to do with a study, but that's what your mind was thinking about as we did Mark's Gospel, so I'm happy that we talk about it. it why Easter at Easter? I mean, why not give thanks to God for what he's done in Christ Jesus all the time around? Why do we have special season called Easter? For no good reason, I know. That's why we'll do it again this year. Uh, you certainly don't have to, and I'm not a great believer in those, uh, those things, but seeing that's when people are willing to think about it, then I'm happy to think about it with them any time, even then. If miracles were com uh, combating evil, what is the point of things like walking on the water or feeding the 5,000? Very good question. Now, an excellent question which I look forward to answering in a few weeks' time when you come to walking on the water and feeding the 5,000 in a few chapters ahead. Why does Jesus walk on water? Why is it the present miracle ministries don't go for walker wa water walking? They all go for healing backaches, but very few people are out there on the water walking and feeding multitudes with bread and fish. Why is that so, and why did Jesus do it, and what is the point of it? I think that's the right question to be asking. Because it wasn't just a show-off, it was for specific rule. You'll come to it in a few weeks' time. Why did Jehovah's Witness think that Jesus is not God? In a sense, you'll have to ask them that. Uh, I believe uh, that he is. I think it has to do with their approaching God by definition, which lots of non-Jehovah's Witnesses do too. And so they make up the philosopher's God, so to speak. You know, the... The, uh, the kind of God that you can argue about and you can define, omnipresent, omniscient, uh, uh, and omnipotent, etc. And so you make up this God and then you say, does Jesus fit into the categories of God? They also have a very firm grasp of simple arithmetic. One plus one plus one equals three and cannot equal one. And uh, they just keep going over, over that, uh, I think, simplistic view of arithmetic. You've got to see God as he reveals himself. If he revealed himself as being in 25 dimensions, well then, just because you can't think of 25 dimensions doesn't mean he's not in 25 dimensions. God can only be described, he can't be defined. To define something, you need more than one, one occurrence of it. If there's something that is unique, all you can ever do is describe it. You can't define it. You can't make up a category which says it must be like this to be God. Another question comes on the same line. You see, where does the Bible say that Jesus is God? Well, I'll give this one to you because uh, people do ask it and they want to see where it is. So let me write up a few references that you can write down. And you can see it. Uh, Thomas, of course, says it in uh, John 20, verse 17. Paul writes about it in um, Titus 
2, I think it's 13, in Romans uh, 9, verse 5. Hebrews has it in Hebrews 1, 6. Um, John has it with disputation in uh, John 1, 1, of course, and 2 uh, are places where Jesus is called God. I think there are others that we could uh, come across, but that will do. But the question also goes on, but it says, the Father can do greater things than I can. And there is a greater, you see, it's again the definitional problem. If you define God as that which can do the greatest things, Jesus is one who says, my Father can do greater things, then by definition Jesus isn't God. But Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Son is God, they are all equally God, but they do different things. They have different capacities, they are distinctive. You've got to understand Trinitarianism in its own terms and not make up a definition of God before you meet him. You've got to say, well, what is God like when you do meet him? And you'll find the Father does things that the Son doesn't do and knows things the Son doesn't know. And yet, in Christ, the whole fullness of Godhead dwelt bodily. Haven't got one down. Colossians 2.10, I think it is. Whole chapter's worth reading. Doesn't the far, um, oh, doesn't brother sister uh, in the original languages equal cousin? Remember that uh, Mary has her, uh, Jesus has his brothers and sisters and mother with him. What about the original language? Does that mean cousin? Well, the word for brother and sister is Adelphos. I know you don't read Greek or Adelphi. Uh, that's all right. I just want to show you how different the thing is. Whereas there is a word for cousin, which is uh, sung, uh, it is, it's, it's yeah, that's right, sungnes. It looks nothing like it, does it? Right? Even you can see it looks nothing like it. <laughs> and that's for cousin. That's for brother, that's sister there, that's brother there. Right? And you'll find that in Mark. 6.4, so Mark knew that there was a word for cousin. Now, the word brother, like our word brother, can be used non-specifically. So I can, uh, I can say to Craig, well, thank you, brother, for reading the passage for us. Not that he is the son of my father and my mother. I'm using it there in terms of Christian brother. And certainly, so the word brother can mean more than exact sibling. And likewise, the word cousin can mean more than exactly my uncle or aunt's son or daughter. It can mean my kinsman. Uh, there are many references to it. In fact, in Romans 5, it talks about the Israelites, my brother Israelites, my cousins, my kinsmen, because he's using the word brother in its general sense that it can use. But the basic gut meaning of the word brother is brother, just like as in English. And the normal sense, when I talk about my brother, the first thing you think of is the child of my parents, who is not myself. Uh, that is the normal first meaning. You then need to say, well, in the context, what could he be talking about? I mean, is he calling all kinds of people? The whole of Australia are my brethren, my brothers and sisters. Well, obviously, he's not talking about his father being the father of the nation physically. But in a context when it talks about here is his mother, and here are his brothers and his sisters. If you wanted to say, here's his cousins, you'd say the word cousins. Why do you specify brothers and sisters? 
and when you're in a context of talking about his mother as well. You don't, it's got to be in that context we're talking about the literal brothers and sisters. There are other references to uh, cousin you'll find, for example, in Luke uh, 136. Uh, the cousin of uh, Mary is, uh, uh, is Elizabeth, the mother of J uh, John the Baptist, and you'll find it in Luke 158 to 44. The word is known in the New Testament. It's frequently enough they didn't need it. No, brother means brother in Mark chapter 3. Uh, people mention about the 12 tribes, that you see the 12 apostles, 12 tribes. Do the 12 tribes can, uh, relate to any nations today? Well, of course, that's the Mormon heresy and the, and the British Israelite heresy. People who are fanatically chauvinistic, who believe their nation is the nation, believe that the 12, 10 of the 12 lost tribes, they have gone to Britain, and really Britain is really the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Or if you're really a fanatic American, then they're Americans. If you're really fanatic Australian, you want to start off a new heresy, they're Aborigines. And it's that kind of thing. No, the Bible sees that the, uh, the continuation of the nation of Israel is the continuation of the nation of Israel. What about uh, Judas? He's one of the 12. Does he relate to any particular group at the moment? No, he's wiped out with his suicide and is replaced by the blessed Saint Matthias, patron saints of churches I know. Do people need to be whole or healed in order to serve Jesus more effectively? Do, Jesus, do people need to be whole or healed in order to, affect, to, to, to serve Jesus? Now, it's a current teaching that is going around that the reason why, well, the, that your ministry is affected is because you're not whole, you're not healed, and so on. I'd say definitely not. The reason Paul preached the gospel in Galatia was because he was sick. He says so in the epistle of the Galatians. He was taken there because he was sick. It was his sickness would let him to preach there. And in 2 Corinthians, a uh, very important passage of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, especially you'll notice 4 verse 7, he says it is important that this body which preaches the gospel is a nothing. Because when you see people getting converted from this nothing, then you know that the power is from God and not from this body. And so rather than you have to be whole and healed in order to preach the gospel, I think you have to be sick and dying in order to preach the gospel. It's the exact reverse is what 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 is, is uh, writing about. What exactly is blasphemy? I'm sorry I didn't define it. It's a funny old word, isn't it? It's an old-fashioned word and only used in religious circles these days in the law courts. Uh, it means any word or any action which indicates your rejection, your despising, your scorning of God. So when you swear, oh God, oh Christ, well, the very use of the name of God like that is indicative of the fact that you actually despise God, you reject God. It's a very trivial form of blasphemy, of course, but it is a form of, that's what blasphemy is about, but it's the profound form is that you reject God, that's blasphemy that face to face with God, you say, well, no, that's not true, that's the devil. That's blasphemy. Is eternal sin the backsliding of Christians? No, no, I take it it's the rejection of the non-Christian is the eternal sin. What uh, role has exorcisms in church got today? Has delivering people from Satan uh, uh, changed now? Or lost its importance? No, the death of Jesus changes the relationship of Christians to Satan. And once people have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, 
then exorcisms are an irrelevance. But for those outside, they are still a possibility. Why do Christians have to go to church? Are they lacking in a thing if they don't go? Well, same reason cricketers have to go to cricket. Uh, you don't have to. You can be a cricketer and stay at home. There's thousands of them in Australia who are cricketers by the television set. But those of us who want to play the game actually tend to go. Same with golfers going to golf. and with I mean, we have been invited to join the family of God. Do you have to go to your family meetings in order to be a member of your family? No. Your family can be a family and never meet again. Never talk with each other, never have anything to do with each other, and you could still be in the family, couldn't you? After a few years, you've got to wonder, what's the point of being in the family? What value is there in being the family? What pleasures do I gain from the family? Well, I mean, that's just ridiculous kind of question. You don't have to go in order to make yourself a Christian, but if you are a Christian, you will want to go. If you don't want to go, I think that's prima facie evidence that you're not a Christian. But it could be possible that you don't want to get, that you're unable to go for some reason. Well, now, some of you were worried last week because I didn't tell you the outcome of a story. <laughs> you can generally rest assured that the punchline of the story is not very good if you're not told it. And it wasn't, so I didn't. This week I'm going to tell you another story. The punchline's not very good either. However, I'll tell you the story because, and I'll tell you the punchline this time because without the punchline you won't listen to the rest of the talk. <laughs> it's not so much a story, it's a joke. It's not so much a joke, it's a torture. My older brother tortured me with it for about three years between somewhere about the age of six to nine until I tumbled to it. He would never tell me the end of the story and I shouldn't tell you either. Some of you know the joke already, and you will enjoy it. Some of you don't know the joke, you won't enjoy it at all. That's the character of this joke, that's why it's a torture. Did you hear about the man who went to the zoo, came up to the uh, uh, particular animal, and there was a big sign saying, beware this animal spits. And he was. <laughs> now some you see have heard it before. They know, and they are now enjoying enormously your discomfiture. In fact, you can tick those who know it before because they're the ones who are looking around at other people. <laughs> because the joke lies on those people who don't understand the joke. If you're an overseas student, don't worry, it's not that I've got an Australian piece of humour at this point that you don't understand. The Australians don't understand it either. That's what's so funny. It's that there are people here in this room who think they just missed something which is basically true, but when they find out what they missed, they'll realise they missed nothing, and so then they'll wonder why it was funny. Now, breakfast time on and off for three years, my brother would say, did you hear about the man who went to the zoo? And I'd say, so tell me about the man who went to the zoo. <laughs> he was standing outside this pit and said, beware this animal was, beware this animal spits, and he was. Very annoying, isn't it? And so you go and try it at school. I'd say, have you heard about the bloke who was standing at the, the, the zoo and he was standing, there was a big sign saying, beware this animal spits, and, and uh, he was. And the kids would say, no, when's the joke coming? And I'd say, well, that's it, do you understand? No. <laughs> but I couldn't get any joy laughing at them because they, that, my brother got a lot of joy laughing at me. 
goodness, I'm getting a little joy now looking at those mystified faces around about me at the moment. That's the only joy in this joke. Now, I'll tell you. Remember when I tell you, you've been cheated. Because the joy that you will find in this joke comes from discovery. And by being told, you don't discover. And so in a few years' time, you, next week, you won't be able to tell anybody this joke because you'll have forgotten it. But every person who's worked it out for themselves remembers for the rest of their lives, especially if you're little and takes you three years to work it out. <laughs> if you work it out, you remember. If you don't work it out, you forget it. Because it's so stupid. Beware this animal spits. And he was where the animal spat. Beware this animal spits. And he was. Wasn't worth getting, was it? It's pretty stupid, isn't it? But you missed it, didn't you? And we enjoyed watching you miss it. I'll tell you another one. Don't bother. Now, what's all this got to do with the price of Jesus in Jerusalem or in Palestine, Canaan? Lots. Let's turn to Mark chapter 4. See, Jesus is a public figure who came into the world and engaged it in its problems. Crowds flocked around to hear him. Rumours spread about him. People travelled enormous distances, great distances to see him. But Jesus was secretive. Though he was a public figure, he was secretive. Already we've noticed as we work through the first few chapters of Mark that he silences the crowds. He silences the evil spirits in chapter 1 verse 25, 1 verse 34. Look across to chapter 3 verse 12. He gave them strict orders not to tell who he was because they knew the truth. He tried to silence the leper whom he cleansed at the end of chapter 1 but the whole thing failed because people like the lepers started blabbing everywhere and so Jesus couldn't go out into public places. He couldn't go into villages anymore. He had to live in lonely places where crowds came to him. And it was his pattern, even before the lepers spilt the beans back in 135, not to let the crowds gather, especially because of his healing miracles, but to go on to new territories all the time. And so now... Whenever he does miracles, like in two, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, immediately afterwards, 13, he, he withdraws away to the, to the lake. Or in one, in two, that's 2, verse 13. Or 2, verse 7, he withdraws with his disciples to the lake. Or 2, 13, he went up onto the mountainside and just calls his disciples, the 12, to him. That is, he keeps withdrawing and avoiding public confrontation. He's a man who's come into a public ministry, but he keeps doing it secretly and avoiding people. You'll see it in chapter, this chapter we're dealing with verse 10 today, chapter 4 verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked about the parables and he told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you but to those outside everything is said in parables. It's a funny verse isn't it? Verse 34 is the same kind of thing. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable, to the crowds that is. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. And verse 35, we didn't read today, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. Jesus is always avoiding people, just gathering a little group of disciples around him, talking to them openly, but talking to the rest of the crowds in parables. 
He doesn't teach publicly except by parables. You can see him teaching publicly in chapter 4, verse 1, but verse 2, he taught them many things by parables. Indeed, in verse 11 we're told, for those outside the, the little group of disciples, everything is in parables. So that, verse 12, they may be ever seeing and never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Ponder that, friends, that's going to be a key verse for us. Or in verse 33, 34, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. The the Greek word there is as much as they could hear. As long as they cared to sit listening to him, he'd talk to them in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. But privately, he explained everything to his disciples. Jesus' consistent pattern was preaching in parables to the crowds. But why? Why did he use parables? Well, what is a parable, firstly? Those of us who have been to Sunday school can answer the question what a parable is, can't we? Who can tell me what a parable is from their Sunday school experience, please? There's a key phrase we're all taught. Those of us, I had the privilege to. Well done. Every Sunday school in the world has been taught that. Earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I love Sunday school. I was converted as a Sunday school student and I'm a great believer in Sunday school but that was one of the mistakes we were taught. You see, built on it is an assumption about the nature of Jesus' ministry which is completely wrong, which has misled many people in the reading of their Bibles and so the Jesus in our head from such a godly place as Sunday school is different to the Jesus in history which you're going to learn about in the next half hour. So hang on to your hats because it's quite different to what you expect. So the idea of a parable for most people is that it's a simple homely illustration drawn from natural easy life, you know, shepherds and, and vine dresses, etc. in order to explain the very difficult concepts of heaven that are hard for us to understand. Heaven is not hard to understand. The earth is hard to understand. It's not a problem of understanding our problem. Our problem is sin, not understanding. That's, that's, understanding is neither here, it's sin. That's our problem. Jesus doesn't tell parables to make things simple. Jesus tells parables to make things difficult. It's the exact reverse of what you think. Look at that passage, chapter 4, verse 10 and 11 and 12. He said, everything for the outsider is in parables... I'm only explaining to you who are inside. If the parables are to make it simple, why does he have to explain it to the insiders? Surely then he'd say, I've told everything in difficult language to outsiders and I'm explaining it to you in parables inside. Parables are not to make it easy. Parables are to make it hard. And the reason I'm telling you them parables, telling them parables, verse 12, is so that they won't understand. I'm not telling them parables so that they will understand. Look at verse 12 so that they may ever see but never perceive, ever hear but never understand, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. He said, but hang on, I thought Jesus came so that people would turn and be forgiven. You haven't understood it yet. No, you haven't got it yet. Jesus didn't come in preaching so as to convert the nation. That's not what he's trying to do. Because if he converted the nation, who would crucify him? He came into the world to be crucified. He doesn't want to convert the nation. No, you've got to understand it correctly. It's, it's, it is weird, isn't it? I can tell from the humour in your face you think this man has now lost his marbles. No, no, but you might find yours in a few minutes. Jesus came not so as to convert the nation, but so as to divide the nation. 
It's quite different. John came to prepare God's people. Jesus came to divide God's people, to call those who are truly God's people into his fold, while at the same time reinforcing those who were opposed to God so that they would do the dastardly deed of crucifying the Son of Glory. That's what he's doing. And so as he speaks, he's got to speak in parables. Parables are like parabolas. There you go. Bit of the old maths, just for the sake of... Well, uh, the mathematicians here don't get much of a look in, do they? Uh, I can really use maths. And you see, the, the idea of parable and parabola is if you know what half of it looks like, you know what the other half looks like, don't you? Two things lying parallel to each other effectively... It's not specific parallel, but two things that lie either side of the axis. You know one side, you know what the other side. So the idea that people have of parabola, parable, is the idea of a story which illustrates the other thing. It's not so. You're dealing actually with a Hebrew word, marshal, which is translated parable in the Old Testament. And marshal means riddle or proverb, saying or parable. But it's often it's a riddle. It's it's a proverb. It's not just a simple story. Indeed, some of the parables of the New Testament only last for one verse. Samson tells an incredible riddle about honey in the in the lions. You can't understand it. Look it up later, you'll see it in Judges 14, 12. He doesn't tell it so that his enemies will understand it, he tells it so his enemies will look stupid by not being able to understand it. Nathan's parable, David doesn't understand until the very last sentence. You know, this man deserves death. Who is he? You are the man, David. The parable is there to judge. It's to condemn. It's to, it's to trick you. It's like, beware this animal spits. Where is the humour in that? The humour is watching the mystified face of the person you tell it to. Right? It's, it's, it's not funny in itself. It's pretty stupid. But it actually divides the audience. As soon as I told it, even before I finished, I could see people laughing because they knew it. And when I finished it, I could see other people who wanted to know what it meant looking terribly confused. And I enjoyed it because it divided the audience. But there's no enjoyment in the thing itself. What is a parable then? A parable is a riddle. A parable is a proverb. A parable is an idea that you've got to work at. And when you work at the idea, you tumble to understand it. You say, aha, I got it. And then it's worthwhile. But if you ever have it explained to you, well, it's like a joke that's explained. A joke that's explained is just not funny, is it? You can never have a joke explained and then laugh. Well, a parable is like that. So when does Jesus teach parables? Verse 2, verse 11, verse 33, always and only to outsiders in contrast to the disciples, the insiders. Whenever there is a crowd, as long as the crowds gathered to hear him, he spoke in riddles, so that they wouldn't understand what he said. But to the disciples later, well, then he explained everything. You see, when Isaiah was called to be a prophet, Isaiah was called by God to be a prophet, not in order to save the nation, but in order to condemn the nation. That's what Isaiah was called to do. And so... Chapter verse 12 is a quote from Isaiah 6. Just as Isaiah 6 was called to condemn the nation by his preaching, so is Jesus called upon to condemn the nation by his preaching. 
And so he does it by the use of parables. And his parables reveal in a hidden way. If you're on the inside, if you understand what they're about, you understand lots. If you're on the outside, they keep you locked out. And so they divide the audience. They challenge the audience. They challenge the audience because they bring judgment and mercy of God's word to effect. For as you hear a parable, if you're one of God's people, it brings the mercy of the kingdom of God upon you. And if you're not one of God's people, it brings the judgment of God upon you. That is, God's word is not just information. God's word is confrontation. The problem with you and God is not that you lack information about God. The problem with you and God is you are in opposition to God. And God is in opposition to you. And the word of God doesn't come just filling in information. The word of God comes to you challenging you as to where you are. And whether you are in right relationship or wrong relationship with God. To those who are saved, to the insiders, why information is given explanation is given but to those who are outsiders confrontation is given and so Isaiah 6 is the pattern for Jesus the sinful people receive the word of God only to reinforce their sinfulness for it's not God's purpose at this point to save all the nation well then what is this secret teaching of Jesus that we have in chapter 4 of Mark well, to take it out of a parable form and to explain it to you will weaken its impact. But, on the assumption that you're on the inside for a moment, let me do it. Notice that Mark chapter 4 comes in the context of conflict. Quickly run back through chapters 1 to 3 and you'll see it. He starts off gathering huge crowds. Everybody's following him. Everybody wants to know more and more about him. But then... It starts to go wrong. Chapter 2, verse 7, they accuse him of blasphemy or question him about it. Chapter 2, verse 16, they say, why is he eating with sinners? Chapter 2, verse 18, they say, why, why isn't he keeping the fasting rules? Why are they always feasting? Chapter 2, verse 23, it's unlawful to break the Sabbath the way they are. Chapter 3, verse 2, they start looking to see if they can trap Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 6, the Herodians and the Pharisees plot together how they can kill him. And then the, the, the family thinks he's mad and comes to take him away. And the, the, the teachers from Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the scribes from Jerusalem come down and pronounce him as being possessed. As the chapters are going on, more and more opposition is arousing towards Jesus. And one of the good questions is, if this is the Jewish Messiah, why is the Jewish nation rejecting him? It was a question for Jesus' disciples. And Jesus is answering it to them. But it was a question for the rest of the first century. If he truly was the Jewish Messiah, why did the Jewish nation reject him? And indeed, it's a question I've heard down to the 20th century. People say to me, well, what do the Jews make of Jesus? What, what do they ever think about him? What's their attitude towards him? A very interesting and useful book that, uh, on that subject, which I'd commend to you, by a man called Lepede, L-I-P-E-D-E, called The Resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Pincus is his first name. It's a great name, isn't it? The resurrection of Jesus. Who was saying, yes, we Jews shouldn't have rejected him. And in fact, if you go back and look, 
Pincus Lapide, a rabbi, says, in fact, he rose from the dead. He's a great prophet. We should have listened to him. He then completely distorts what he said, but at least he recognises that Jesus rose from the dead. It's a question of the 20th century still. Why do the Jews reject Jesus? And here is the answer. Because Jesus came to be rejected. Because Jesus taught them in such a way that only the godly would respond favourably. Because Jesus spoke in parables, bringing judgment upon people. Because that's what the parables are about. You see, the four soils, or the parable of the sower, as we tend to call it, confronts you, doesn't it, with judgment. It asks you the question, which soil are you? can't read that without thinking, which soil am I? Unless you're the first soil, then you don't think at all. But if you're one of the other three soils, you keep on saying, which is, which is me? Am I the... Or again, look at the lamp. At the moment, things are hidden, but it will all be made clear. But look at verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Even more. Verse 25. Weird this, isn't it? Whoever will be given more... Whoever has will be given more. Whoever doesn't have, even what he has will be taken from him. There's the haves and the have-nots in the crowd. And the haves are going to be given more and the have-nots are going to have things taken from them. Doesn't sound fair, doesn't sound just, doesn't sound... It doesn't even sound like a good socialist, does it? Very weird kind of verse 25. But his judgment is involved in it. The seed is... The kingdom of God is like a seed. It's got a secret growth to it. It grows and grows. You don't know how it grows. You may water, but you don't know how it grows. You can't see it grow because it's millimetre by millimetre. But then one day, verse 29, as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. The kingdom of God is like a judgment time. It's going to come up. You're not going to be able to see it come up, but when it arrives, you will see it. It's like a tree, like a mustard seed. You, you plant this little seed in the ground. It grows. grows enormously. You don't see it growing, but in the end day it's so big that the, why the, the birds of the air nest in its branches. Everyone will see it in the end. He says, well, such is the kingdom of God now. And the question is, do you see it? Can you see the harvest that is coming to you? Can you see the tree that is going to stand right in front of you? Can you beware because it is coming? The idea of the secret growth of the salvation of the kingdom of God and the final judgment, it calls upon you to make a judgment all the time. That is, in this chapter, the parables are the parables of the word of God. You see it that he keeps preaching the word of God to them in chapter 4, verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them. But remember what the parable of the sower is about? The parable of the sower is about preaching the word. Come back with me to chapter 4, verse 15, verse 14. The farmer sows the word. Who do you think Jesus is? Jesus is preaching the word. The farmer sows the word. Verse 15. Some people lie like the seed along the path where the word is sown. Verse 16. Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and receive it with joy. Verse 17. Since you have no root, but since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, why does it come? Because of the word. Verse 18. Still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word. 
Verse 19 talks about choking out the word. Verse 20 about hearing the good soil, hearing the word. Jesus preaches the word. What do you think he is doing? He is doing what the parable is talking about. The kingdom comes in the preaching of the word of God. And so therefore throughout the chapter there is this great challenge to listen. Chapter, two, chapter 4 verse 2, he taught them many things by parables in his teaching he said, listen. Chapter 4 verse 9, Jesus said to them, he who has ears to hear, use them. Right? Let him hear. Verse 24, consider carefully what you hear. For as you hear this message, if you receive it, more will be given to you. But if you don't receive it, even the bit you heard will be taken away from you. It's like where this animal spits. If you worked it out for yourself, you will always remember it. But if you have it explained to you, in three weeks' time you'll say, oh, there was a stupid joke I heard the other day. It was something about a man going to the zoo and anyway, an animal spat at him. You can't remember it because you never worked it out for yourself. It's like that with lots of learning, isn't it? And so even the little bit that you were given actually gets taken away from you. But to those who have, more is given to them. See, there are the parables about the hearing of the word of God. The kingdom of God is planted. It's growing. It's growing secretly. It soon, though, will be displayed overwhelmingly but at that time will be the harvest at that time will be the judgment time at that time there'll be safety for some like the birds of the air nestling in its branches but there'll be judgment for others like the chaff that is to be destroyed in the harvest so therefore listen carefully now because as you receive the word now so you will be received into the kingdom then and as you reject the word now even the word that you heard will be taken away from you and your place in the kingdom. So this powerful story of the sower confronts and challenges all because this is, the, this is the first and foremost parable. It is the great parable. Notice what Jesus says in verse 13, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any of the parables. This is the one that is the parable about parables. Be careful how you listen to the word of God. For as the word of God is preached, it will be preached to four kinds of audiences. I presume that is the case right now. For part of the problem of campus Bible study is you open in prayer and close with prayer. No other lecture class does that. Why is that done? Well, it's got to do with the fact that this is not just an intellectual exercise. This is not just filling your minds with information. This is part of the confrontation with God that actually involves you as a person and your openness and willingness to face up to God. You say, well, I don't care anything about God. It all seems a bit stupid to me. Well, that's all right. There's the first kind of soil. There's the rocky ground, and there are people like that here now who are asleep. But their eyes are open. They're glazing towards the front. They always look towards the front in lecture classes. Some of them even can keep their pens going in time with the voice. Right? but nothing is getting through the skull rocky through and through is the character of their mind and their brain because the word is hitting and bouncing off all the time because they are asleep 
and miles and miles away and when they walk out of the lecture class at the end of it they say oh it was very interesting he was funny really today I can't remember what he was talking about really but oh it's in my notes anyway and when you look at your notes later you look at them and say well can't even remember what was funny anymore and that's all you've got from that kind of experience there are people like that today now I can be as rude as I like to them can't I because they're not listening it's wonderful but I won't go on about them because it's a waste of time, isn't it? There is a second group of people, they're the enthusiasts. And they're always there when we preach the word of God. And they hear it, it's fantastic. I mean, I grew up going to chapel at school and I never knew the Bible was about that. Or I went to Sunday school for the year eight to eight and a half because my next door neighbor used to drag me along and then we moved house and I've never been since, but I thought I knew what it was all about. But now that you pointed out the parables are the exact reverse of what I thought. And so you go home and say, Mum and Dad, I've read the Bible now. One chapter, that's as good as the whole lot. I've read the Bible now and it's fantastic. You should see the things that are there. Did you know that Jesus told parables so as to condemn people like you to hell? It's wonderful, really. <laughs> And then, because of this kind of thing, the reaction sets in. Come on, don't be stupid. You're there to study. We want you to make mega bucks when you get your university degree. If we had the opportunities to study like you've got the opportunities to study, we wouldn't waste time at lunchtime. We'd be in the library working all the time. And, and all those other kinds of things that come out that uh, flow over the land. Remember when I was your age, I went through a phase too, let it pass. And you think, well, maybe campus Bible study wasn't that wonderful. I don't really need to know about this. I don't want the aggravation at home. I've got this terrible problem getting the car anyway. I don't need this. And so you're just enthusiasts. And, of course, there are some amongst us who say, yeah, it's true. I know it's true. I want it to be true. Yeah, it's right. I want that. I want to accept that. But at the same time, I don't want to let go of the family. I don't want to let go of the career. I don't want to let go of the boyfriend, the girlfriend. I don't want to let go of the overseas trip. I don't want to let go of anything else in my life. I just want to bring it in as well as everything else. And it can't be like that because if it's the kingdom of God, then it can't be just one of my activities amongst all the other activities of my life. It has to be the activity. If it's not the activity, then it gets choked out over time. And there's the fourth kind of soil which produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. It's here too. And it's not only a challenge about our soils, it's also a teaching to the disciples because it tells the disciples what they're to be doing. So they've got the authority to preach the word and it tells every one of us that three quarters of our labour is wasted. Three quarters of it is gone. In our total ministry, three quarters of the people who hear me speak, in the long run, are going to reject what is being said. But that last quarter produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold and so in that last quarter will be a growth far greater than any of the crowds I ever spoke to. That's why Christianity is growing. A man in Palestine started speaking like this 2,000 years ago and now all over the world millions and millions of people believe in him. But you can never say, ah, there's the growth or there's the growth or there's the growth because each generation brings its own new growth just like a tree. And so within this crowd here, some, many will leave us and that's always very sad. But those who really are the genuine soil will produce 30, 60, 100 fold. So the form and the function of the parable match each other. The parable is an extraordinary thing because the parable confronts you with a question, what kind of soil are you? What kind of ministry is taking place here? You see, the parable reads the reader. 
when people go home, what they say about the parable tells you more than what the parable is about. When they go home and they say, oh, he's a great storyteller, you know they haven't heard anything. When they go home and say, well, I don't understand it, but he's got something. I need to hear more about this. You say, well, to him, more will be given. And when people go home and say, I've understood at last. I get, then even more will be given. So you have heard the secret. Jesus is the king who's come to rule the universe. But he's come in this secret revelation. He's come to rule the universe by being killed by people. And so he preached in a way which was distinctive and unusual by talking in riddles and educating the insiders privately. And so here is the story I tell it to you now. Jesus is the ruler of the universe who has died to save us. And there will be some who are hearing that will say, that'd be ridiculous. And there will be some who are hearing it will say, well, I want to find out more. And there are some who are saying, yeah, I know that's the truth. But the key lies in your acceptance or rejection. lies in your listening. lies in not falling asleep, not just being an enthusiastic fad follower, not just carrying other baggages with Christianity, but being genuine in your acceptance of the message. You see what parables do to you? They don't inform you. They confront you. They divide you. They save some. They alienate others. And do you see why Jesus wasn't using miracles so as to draw the crowd? The miracles that drew the crowd actually was undoing his work. He then had to talk to the crowd in riddles. Is Jesus, the Jesus you follow and believe or the Jesus you don't follow and don't believe is that Jesus the same as the one in the Mark's Gospel? Make sure you accept or reject the authentic one, won't you? Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for your Son and for the confrontation with your kingdom that he brings to us. We do pray that you would help us to receive your word and to grow by it. Help us to be genuine in that. Save us from rash enthusiasm, from dullness of heart, from hypocrisy and compromise of trying to live in two worlds, that we may truly be part of that part of the vineyard that produces 30-fold, 60-fold and 100-fold. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.